Hello there, my name is Dr Christopher Pryor and I'm a lecturer in British and Imperial History at University College Dublin. I'll be looking at this question, why did the British Empire come to an end? The topic is an enormous one to try and cover in an introductory podcast such as this, but we'll be looking at some of the main themes. I'd like to start by suggesting that the question, why did the British Empire come to an end, should be approached by looking at the question, why didn't the British Empire come to an end earlier? After all, even at the peak of Britain's imperial might, which many historians place around the mid to late 19th century, the whole thing was run with a skeleton crew. Sudan, nearly one million square miles in size, was only administered by little over a hundred colonial administrators at any one time. Of course, these administrators were aided by the hard power of soldiers and policemen and, some have argued, the soft power of missionaries and teachers. Plus, Britain was the strongest economic force in the world in the 19th century. Nevertheless, we have to consider the sheer size of the empire. The British couldn't police everywhere intensively all of the time. At its geographical height, just after the First World War, the empire stretched across approximately one quarter of the world's landmass. So the empire could be vulnerable. In India, in the Great Rebellion of 1857, the British came quite close to losing their jewel in the imperial crown demonstrating that if Indians expressed their anti-colonial grievances with enough force, they could pose a serious threat. Indeed, it was only because the Indians weren't united at this time, separated by different identities, by region, by language and so on, that the British isolated the rebels and picked them off one by one. It's this lack of unity that starts us off on our explanation of why the empire fell when it did. If we maintain our focus on India for the moment, before the First World War, anti-colonial nationalism wasn't a mass phenomenon. Very broadly speaking, people were concerned about their own lives, their own regions, and saw their caste identities as what made them who they were. At this time, nationalism was an elite phenomenon. It was the preserve of a few university graduates whom the British trained to provide civil servants for their colonial administrations. But nationalism gradually became a mass phenomenon. One of the ironies, or paradoxes if you prefer, of empire, was that across enormous swathes of sub-Saharan Africa, the Middle East, South and East Asia and so on, it facilitated the rise of modern nation-states. The British provided education, they demarcated territories, drawing new borders, they amalgamated territories, unifying formally divided political entities. They proclaimed themselves responsible for nations, not regions. They educated Africans, Indians and others about nations. For example, Africans and Indians were taught history at school. They were taught about the history of Europe and how the 19th century had witnessed the rise of nationalism as a popular phenomenon there. They were taught about the unification of Germany and the unification of Italy, for example. They were increasingly exposed to the idea of nations as part of a natural order of things. The very act of empire, therefore, encouraged people living in the colonies to think nationally. So, the very fabric of imperial life gradually changed attitudes towards one's homeland. This was bolstered by the rise to prominence of charismatic leaders. The nationalist leaders were all very different, but they knew how to make big, bold statements effectively. 
They weren't afraid to make such proclamations, even if it meant getting arrested. Gandhi, for instance, was arrested in 1942. In the Gold Coast, which would later become Ghana, Kwame Nkrumah even managed to win his country's first general election in 1951 whilst in prison. Men, and they were virtually all men in terms of the big nationalist figures at this time, knew how to make speeches, how to motivate, how to organise people. However, in accounting for the empire's fall, you also have to take a look at broad international factors. The Second World War had a tremendous impact upon Britain. Britain was, of course, damaged economically by the conflict and eclipsed internationally by the rising superpowers, the United States and the Soviet Union. Beforehand, other nations, such as France and Germany, had opposed Britain's development of a large empire. But as the biggest economic power in the 19th and early 20th centuries, Britain had been able to resist such opposition. Now, after 1945, a weakened Britain had less capacity to resist this. And lastly, in accounting for the empire's fall, tying the national and the international together, you also need to examine the impact of broader imperial trends upon colonies. Nationalism became international. Nationalism's strength lay in its flexible nature. Nationalism was imprecisely defined, yet potent as a rallying call. With the development of newspapers, of telegraph lines under the ocean, it became easier to learn about what was going on elsewhere in the world, sometimes taking inspiration from one another. Indian nationalists in the 1920s and the 1930s looked back to what the Irish nationalists had managed to achieve in obtaining independence from London. Then, when Indian nationalists started to successfully gain concessions from the British, nationalists elsewhere were able to learn of this fact and sought to emulate this in turn. British governors in Africa were aware of this and did all they could to stop Africa following India's example. In conclusion then, Britain couldn't avoid altering the countries that came under her control. Indeed, many viewed the making of such changes as an essential justification for the British possession of an empire in the first place. It was Britain's duty to supposedly civilise the world. Britain reaped the benefits of these alterations in the short term, in the form of educated young indigenous men to staff her civil services, in the form of improved export figures, in the form of speedier communications and transport across her vast global empire. But in the long term, Britain set in motion processes that would ultimately prove her own undoing. Furthermore, in the much-altered circumstances of the post-1945 world, with nationalism now an internationally recognised means of galvanising the masses, and with charismatic leaders able to do the galvanising, drawing upon rhetoric that stressed colonial oppression, Britain was no longer in a position to resist. The imperial momentum that had built up over centuries completely collapsed in a few short generations and a new world emerged.